Hello, hello, Nico here, your host of the Redox Podcast. Today we have another special episode to share with you from our sister podcast, Shift6, hosted by my co-founder and Redox CTO, James Lloyd. Shift6 is a developer-focused podcast, but even as a non-code writing health tech nerd like myself, I found them really approachable. We'll be sharing a few episodes here, but if you like them, find your way over to Shift6 wherever you podcast and subscribe directly. Meanwhile, the Redox podcast will be back with a new episode in just a few days, maybe a week. I was lucky enough to have Nikita Sangaretti and Nikhil Krishnan on the show. These two, separately, have launched some of the best new health tech blogs out there. Beyond their in-depth analysis on the industry, they're also just really great to talk to and hilarious to boot. So watch out for that episode coming soon. And now, without further ado, here's James with Shift6. Welcome to Shift6, a developer-focused health tech podcast from Redox. I'm your host and the CTO at Redox, James Lloyd. Here we'll explore the ways amazing technologists are bringing new innovation to market, growing their teams, and dealing with an ever-changing landscape in one of the world's most complex industries. We believe that technology from diverse and empathetic creators holds the power to improve the lives of patients across the globe. We hope this podcast helps make your work in healthcare even more impactful. Let's jump in. Today's guest is Danielle Giofani. She leads the Broad Institute's data science platform team, maximizing the impact of data science on the biomedical ecosystem. She also cares deeply about the startup community and serves as a mentor to early stage companies at the intersection of healthcare and data. Uh, prior to these roles, Danielle designed, built, and grew the largest integrated real world database of clinical and claims data for Optum. Welcome to the show, Danielle. Thanks, James. It's great to be here. Well, let's start with just uh, hearing a little bit about the Broad Institute and your team and the, and the work you do there, just to give us a little bit of an intro. Okay. So the first thing that you should know is that the word is written B-R-O-A-D and pronounced Broad. So anytime you see it, if you're unfamiliar with the area, you're not based in New England, and often people will call it the Broad Institute, but like the thing that your audience should now be in the know of is it's actually pronounced Broad. So Broad is named after Eli and Edith Broad. It's been around for about 15 years. And also a fun fact, there are two Broads. There's a Broad Institute of the East, which is focused on science. And then there's a Broad in the West in LA focused on art. And so really the, the first endowment came to the Broad after the original Human Genome Project. And the concept that the Human Genome Project kind of illustrated was that the next generation of science is going to be big and it's going to require collaboration. If you don't know what the Human Genome Project was, it was essentially funded by the Department of Energy, I think from like 1990 up till the, I don't know, early 2000s. And it was essentially like a multi-year effort focused on sequencing the human genome end to end. And if you're unfamiliar with the human genome, what it is, is basically hearkening back to high school biology. We all have 23 chromosomes that when they're uncoiled, they translate to a bunch of DNA, and then that DNA is sequenced and turns into RNA and proteins and actually becomes like all the functioning aspects of your body. So your DNA is your blueprint. And the human genome was essentially building a reference map of kind of like a common hybrid of a bunch of humans, something that we could use to bump up against other humans and study where is variation happening and, and what variation is kind of pathogenic or causes disease. So the Human Genome Project was this big effort. There were, I don't know, 40 different institutions all coding different 
aspects of the genome. And that, that effort, you know, it was like 15 years, I think like $450 million. Like it was an ex- extreme amount of money, extreme amount of time. Don't quote me on that number of money. I think it was bigger, but either way, it was huge. It was a grand undertaking. And the Broad Institute was founded because we said, oh shit, like next generation science is going to be huge. And we want to be at the center of that. And it's going to require collaboration. Whereas historical academic work was insulated in a lab and often kind of competitive for who gets the the next big finding. So that's the Institute. We're basically a genomics research Institute. We have a sequencing facility. So we've basically helped to bring the cost of sequencing down and enable a lot of scientific breakthroughs because you can now sequence a lot of people at a, at a much more efficient cost. And we're increasingly doing a lot of crazy stuff in tech and data science because we're at the intersection of bleeding edge, large scale data processing. And that's where I fit in. Yeah, very cool. And could you tell us a little bit about sort of the, the general size of the organization and of, of your team, just to give us kind of a scope of kind of who you work with on a normal day? Yeah, yeah. So the Broad Institute about five years ago, basically, as as we improved our data processing efforts, different parts of the Broad Institute and their scientific labs. So they run kind of like an academic university would where you have a principal investigator and they're working on some scientific element, they would hire software engineers or teach their lab members to build software to help, you know, everything go faster. And then the sequencing facility also had software engineers building software to make their stuff go faster. And basically five years ago, the organization, the Broad as a whole looked at this and said, if we're not careful, people are going to be reinventing the wheel and doing things slightly differently. And it's going to be really inefficient. And I feel like that's a common story that happens in many organizations. And so they piloted moving a lot of software engineering and data science under one roof. And that's how the data sciences platform was started about five years ago. We're now with a lot of funding from tech philanthropists, government grants, and even commercial partners, we've scaled very rapidly to about 200 people. And our goal is really to bring together all aspects of the kind of biomedical research lifecycle. And so that includes partnering with patients to make patient-powered research go faster. So historically, I think we all know that Patients don't often own their data. The software systems that capture their data are often the people who are kind of negotiating and transacting who gets access to that data. So we build software to help patients kind of be more at the center of how research is using their data. And then we have a large scale kind of data processing facility, and that's kind of like ETL and and complex pipelines and new scientific algorithms optimized for scale and throughput. And then we have a platform that is near and dear to my heart called Terra, which is basically an open source kind of federated infrastructure for large scale biomedical and genomics research data assets. And so there's a lot of, I feel like, players out in the space where they're building privatized federated data networks. And we're trying to build an open source version of that that is free to use, but also has a lot of the kind of security bells and whistles that protect you know, the world's most sensitive research data, which is genomics and clinical data. So that's what we do. That's very cool. Yeah. And I'm sure we'll dig into a little bit more of the the details of the platform here in a, here in a bit. But yeah, and just to get to know you a little bit more too, how did you find your way to the bro and kind of what got you interested in, in healthcare and in data science in general? And yeah, we just love to uh, learn a little bit more about your, your background and the path you took. Sure. Yeah. So I am a, a biomedical engineering 
by training. I graduated from college in Ohio, where I'm from, Midwest represent. Back in the like, you know, years ago, financial recession of 2008, I was sort of just like kicking around with a biomedical engineering degree and not really working, doing yoga, working at a bar. And I finally got a call from from um, Accenture in their IT consulting shop. And they offered me a position in Boston. And at the time, I wasn't doing much. So I took the call and never really looked back. And since then, I've made a career focused on healthcare. I've always, healthcare has always been very close to me. My mother was a physician. There was a time where I really thought I wanted to be a clinician. And then I realized being a consultant and studying for the MCATs that like my life wasn't going to get any more fun <laughs> on, a, on a path to medical school. So I, I nixed that idea and said, well, what's healthcare adjacent? What does that look like? How do I scale kind of impacting people without having to do it hands-on? And that's where kind of health IT really, really showed up for me. And so from Accenture, I did a two-year stint in consulting, which really taught me a lot about like onboarding and ramping up and and adding value very quickly. And, and I jumped from there to a startup called Humedica, which was one of the early players in what was called population health at the time. And population health was essentially aggregating all of the disparate electronic medical records that were all in these different kind of mom and pop electronic medical record systems, kind of aggregating them building a common data model, and then building business analytics on top to, to surface back to providers. Things like, they were pretty simple at the time, right? Things like, here's a list of people who had a heart attack in the past year. One of the biggest risks of having a, a heart attack is that you've had a heart attack before, right? So here's that list. Here's the report. Go ahead and call them. And so through that kind of work, I got really familiar with different EMR backends, and data modeling and the importance of scaling your data infrastructure. But even that that business didn't always sit well with me because we were kind of stewards of data on behalf of the institutions and patients like often didn't know about it, weren't consented. And, and we were often kind of transacting around the data as if it was our own when the implied truth is it's kind of not. And I feel like the world's slowly waking up to that. But what caused me to ultimately leave that company is we were acquired um, by a large healthcare insurance company, Optum, part of United Health Group. And the business was really strong and the, and the data and the opportunities to help were great, but it was all kind of in the context of current healthcare in America, which we all know is like pretty frustrating to put it politely. And so I moved into a partnership role, kind of focused on business development, sat across the table from the Broad Institute in one of our partnership conversations and realized that that the mission and the vision of the Broad, which is to do things at a big scale, kind of impact globally, give back, empower members of the community, not acting on their behalf, all of those values really sat well with me. And, and they, you know, the data sciences platform were just getting started. So about three years ago, I kind of left the startup, which was mature by then, and then kind of joined my next quote unquote startup, which, you know, got the opportunity to pioneer and grow the org and do some different things inside of it. And uh, yeah, I really, I truly believe in like following people, people and kind of vision are two really important things. And I feel very grateful everywhere I've been, I've had the fortune of connecting with very brilliant and also empathetic and mission-driven people but I, I uh, truly believe that right now in my, in my current home. So I'm very lucky. 
Yeah, that's amazing. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about the, you know, the kinds of challenges that you and the team are are working on right now, and you know, feel free to go as as much into detail as you as you want on the on the technical details as much as you're comfortable sharing. And and yeah, we'd love to hear us about some of the things you y'all are working on. So one of the challenges that predates me, but I think is interesting, is you know. The Broad Institute is a large, large uh, genome center is what we call ourselves. But basically, we sequence DNA um, as a service for members of the research community, for other organizations, for pharma. And in the early infancy of my group, the Broad Institute ran out of on-prem storage. And just to kind of give you a, a frame of reference, you know, DNA sequencing, basically there's a lab component, you're pipetting and you're doing wet lab stuff. And then there's a box that is the sequencer. And long story short, what, you know, what goes in the box are biological samples. What comes out of the box are basically little paper shreds, not literally, but like imagine a novel that is your DNA and it's kind of shredded into little sections. And each of those sections are kind of like, it's basically like very messy data that then needs to be reconstructed back into the novel so that we understand kind of your DNA end to end. And so what goes in the machine is biological samples. What comes out is very messy data. And so the order of magnitude of that data is like for every whole human genome that is like end to end, all 23 chromosomes, what comes off the sequencer is about uh, 100 to 200 gigabytes per genome. And the data processing that needs to happen kind of reduces that only into like the the things that are biologically unique to you. We call them the variants. And that is in the order of, you know, 100 to a couple hundred megabytes. So that's kind of gives you the sense of the data processing that needs to happen. And it's very spiky because it depends on the load of data that's coming through the sequencer. But also you need to keep the original messy data, which is essentially like 200 gigs per human sample. And so in the world of on-prem data storage, it was very easy to spend a ton in anticipation of what your system loads were going to be. And then also just like basically max out very quickly, especially if there was a scientist who also needed to use that reserve compute for data processing. And so, yeah, we, we ground to a halt a couple of times and it was a very big deal because if you can't do sequencing, then science stalls and it's very visible and um, yeah, innovation can't happen. And so about five years ago, that kind of began our first foray into moving data to the cloud. And long story short, we have almost a hybrid infrastructure, mostly cloud, like the data is delivered to the cloud and most of the processing happens on the cloud. But the sequencing is still on-prem and there's a little bit of stuff that needs to happen on-prem. But the big first challenge for the Broad Institute was figuring out like which cloud vendor we wanted to work with. And at the, at the time we made the decision to work with Google Cloud Platform, which was like no shade to GCP, but like kind of an unpopular move, right? We're a large scale organization. I think AWS is obviously the undisputed champion in cloud computing and storage. But for us, the Broad, as I mentioned, kind of our core values are collaboration. Like that is key to what we do. And, and with AWS, there wasn't really room for a partnership model. And that's no shade to them. If you're in first place, you don't really have to partner. It's just sort of like, you know, I'm your vendor, pay me. <laughs> so one of the strategic kind of challenges that we were facing was who is the cloud vendor that we can work with collaboratively? And, and remember, we are a large team of developers 
looking for developers to sort of join our cause and work with us on these problems. And so GCP proved themselves a very wonderful partner in that way, that we worked together on building what is now known as the Pipelines API at the time of the Genomics API, which is basically a pipeline, it was an API optimized for genomic workflows. And we still use it today and, and our platform for a lot of data management and data processing that we make available to the world. Like we make all of our production pipelines available to the broader community so anyone can process data consistently with the way that we do it. All of that leverages the underlying infrastructure of GCP. So in many ways, they've helped us get off the ground and we've helped bring them into the genomics research ecosystem in a way that I think the other cloud vendors are now kind of looking at and want to join. So it, it tees up the next level of challenges, and this is kind of where we are in the middle of it. So we've built a data management platform that basically, the way to think about it, I think of it as like kind of almost an octopus where there's one front door that researchers can kind of enter into, and it's you know a web application with a data library. And behind the scenes, each one of those data sources in the data library is managed by a different entity and potentially on a different cloud, right? So it's the, the octopus tentacles are basically that the data doesn't need to be physically aggregated in one place in order for researchers to access it. And there's a lot of bells and whistles that go in between that, but that's essentially the working model that we're moving to. Today, all of those data, all of the data in our data library are on different kind of instances of GCP managed by different people. So we work closely with uh, University of California, Santa Cruz. We work with UChicago. We work with Johns Hopkins University. And so people are managing data in different places, all on Google Cloud. Now, the reality of the research ecosystem, as I mentioned, AWS, Azure, data lives there, like a lot of data lives there. And so you can't really build a research platform that serves the world if you are ignoring the two larger clouds in the ecosystem and where a bulk of the genomics and medical data lives. Um, especially if you want to include kind of clinical data from health systems, which is almost entirely, you know, Azure-based. So the thing that we're dealing with right now is how do we bring the other two cloud vendors into the ecosystem and build a platform that is truly multi-cloud in a way that incentivizes everyone's participation and collaboration among what would otherwise be competitors. And it's tricky and I think there are open questions about how we leverage, for example, GCP has released Anthos or BigQuery Omni, which are essentially compute mechanisms that are kind of GCP based, but can be deployed on other clouds. And to what extent do we leverage that, which is also aligned with GCP, recognizing that multi-cloud is kind of the future versus where we kind of federate across multiple clouds. And for us, that's kind of, that is, a, that is a challenge infrastructurally. I know there are other kind of software shops and platforms that have fixed it and managed it, but I think what makes it a little bit more complicated for us is that we have a commitment to making things as open as possible um, while also kind of managing the restrictions of data use and data access that are kind of... Um, pushed on us by the fact that it is controlled access research data we're talking about. So a lot of trade-offs there. I'd be curious, I mean, James, can you tell me about kind of the extent to which Redox is working across clouds and whether that's been challenging for you? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So we 
we, we decided to go with AWS from more or less from the beginning. We actually started on a kind of a managed service on top of AWS called Aptable. And uh, Frank, the CTO of Aptable, is actually going to be a, a future guest of the of the podcast. So super excited about that. But they they basically wrap up all of the the HIPAA compliance components for companies who are looking for a managed service to do that. And it was really critical for our for our start to be able to to leverage their experience there. And eventually, we moved directly to AWS, not because of any sort of dissatisfaction with them, but more that we were we were doing a lot of stuff at the networking layer, and mm-hmm. it was just, we were just not a most of their companies were really patient or provider facing. And so we were, we were, we really needed to get closer to that network, that networking layer and, and move away from that managed service. But yeah, so we've been on AWS for more or less since the beginning of our, our company for about six years. And we do use, we do actually have some stuff running in GCP, which mm-hmm. is actually our, our AWS testing harness. And so we, if you are testing your infrastructure, you don't want to test it from within the infrastructure that that could go down. So we actually have, we use GCP uh, kind of exclusively for that. And yeah, so we, we, we don't really do any kind of, kind of cross cloud uh, or, or multi-cloud hosting right now, other than some of those additional services that we use to, to, to help maintain our AWS environment, but it's it's definitely something that we've we've looked into, and it's also something where the it's a really tough decision between the pace at which things are changing versus kind of the the switching cost. I mean, moving yep. moving or or adding in an additional hosting provider is is a is a pretty significant level up in terms of just the maturity of data syncing, and for us, we do a ton of near real time work. So there's, you know, if, if we were, if we were a little bit more batch processing, I would say it would probably be quite a bit easier, but yeah, having multiple environments doing, doing that is, is a, is a real challenge. So um, that makes a ton of sense. Yeah. I I think of the world as sort of like, this is kind of my own data management philosophy, but I feel like there's like fast data and slow and perfect data. And I think research is truly slow and perfect for the most part. It needs to be curated and more is always better, but you're willing to wait for that large, perfect data set. And I think that's that's the world we're operating in. And I think it is different from Redox in that way. You really are focused on real-time data. And even if it's like a little messy, people are willing to tolerate that because it's like, I got to know the time of the appointment or whatever. The other thing, yeah. the other thing we're doing is, is leveraging as much infrastructure as code as possible. Mm. So we use something called called Terraform, which in, in some ways you kind of trade off the portability and, and repeatability of, of what you're doing for, you know, you may not always have access to all the specific components of each uh, cloud host because they kind of find the, you know, the least common multiple between all of them in, in a lot of ways. But for us, it, it really covers a lot of the use cases. And I think that that's going to be a, a necessary tool for us to extend either out to additional regions of AWS or mm-hmm. have, a, have a multi-cloud. I think that's, that's really pretty critical to do it with, with a relatively small team. I have a follow-up question. I think we're both probably in a similar place where it's thinking about US only is, is sort of a less complex problem, but there's, you know, ultimately you're not successful in, until you're kind of deployed internationally. When you talk about regions, are you more thinking about US regions or are you thinking international as well? Yeah, I was actually <laughs> thinking about both in uh, it's a, an astute question. Yeah. I think the biggest challenge for for international for us has been the scenarios where where we would actually have to have an on an, an in-country support team or something like that. The 
the technical lift is oftentimes pretty feasible and pretty understandable. The operational and, and kind of logistics lift of providing, you know, support from Germany or from Canada or something like that is would often mean, you know, setting up a new office, hiring more people, things like that. And that that's really where the 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 friction is really hit for us in in terms of thinking about our expansion. Oh, that's interesting. Um, that's interesting. There there are also some really interesting data specific requirements around what is allowed to be transacted and what is not. And sometimes those vary by country. So there's there's also a bit of a kind of a policy or a legal research component for us as we're, we're exploring different countries. And I, I feel like I, I, I may not have full confidence in what I'm about to say, but I, I believe in, for example, in Canada, I believe like communicating the patient's race is in some way forbidden. And so typically what they would do, you know, even like lab results could vary by by the patient's race. So they'll just communicate mm-hmm. in the lab result and like the text, all the possible reference ranges for any possible race. And then that's up to the physician to interpret with the patient mm. kind of directly. And yeah, it's, it's, it's part of their, I, I believe it's part of their, their kind of legal system. And so variances like that, you know, may come up in, in every specific country for us. So there's, there's a little bit of homework for us to do in, in front of talking about new countries as well. On a separate subject. I think that is really interesting. Races, you know, with, to you know, with Black Lives Matter and, and, the position of America kind of waking up to systemic injustice, it's very prevalent in the healthcare system. And I think genomics plays an interesting role here. Often I think of genomics as sometimes like a little bit of navel gazing, right? If we, if someone's got type two diabetes, which is a reversible disease, we know how to treat that with diet and exercise, yet we fail to treat that. And so the more callous side of me kind of looks at genomics and says like, what more do you need to know? we already have information that we need to treat people. On the other side, I think genomics plays a really pivotal role in shaping the next generation of biometrics. Because I think to that exact point, often the biometrics we use today have correction factors based on race. And race is a perceptive thing for the most part, right? If someone passes as white or passes as black, you can often potentially screw up your calculation and those calculations can lead to under treatment or under risk scoring someone who actually like deserves and needs better healthcare treatment. So I didn't know Canada had sort of nixed that concept already and sort of said like race isn't appropriate. They haven't figured out kind of the second piece, which is how do you interpret lab values correctly because they can vary by people's heritage. But I do think once we kind of get to a more advanced place in genetics, I think that that is, that will plug the gap that race is kind of like, kind of screwing up. It's like a good proxy, but not good enough. And, and it's propagating health inequities. So one example of that today is a concept called a polygenic risk score, which is essentially an algorithm that you can run on your 23andMe data today. And what they are is they're not even advanced data science. They're just basically like linear regressions of your entire genome correlated with symptoms or what we call phenotypes, kind of the expression, the biological expression of a disease. So for example, we'll study hundreds of thousands of people and look at the core, the the sort of linear regression of their genome among people who have heart attacks. And we can build a polygenic risk score for 
a heart attack or for schizophrenia or for diabetes. And essentially you have this reproducible algorithm that you can kind of authorize to run your 23andMe data on it. And 23andMe is like important because it's much cheaper. You're basically only uh, 23andMe and Ancestry.com only sequence like certain parts of your genome, not the whole thing. And that's cheaper. So the point is like, you've got kind of inexpensive genetic data. You can run this algorithm on it and it will tell you like, oh, you're actually in the top 10% for risk of heart attack. And those are the people that you really want to kind of target for diet and exercise and stress reduction more than just kind of the general society today where it's like, oh, your LDL or your age. And those are kind of the only two predictors we have. And so it's, so the recommendations and treatments aren't often targeted specifically enough. So I get really excited about that. That's a tangent related to kind of race and data modeling, but, but I am excited about it. Yeah. I I, kind of share your excitement that you know, a lot of demographics have been used as, as proxies or abstractions for what it, what really should just be personalized medicine. And there are yes. areas where, you know, there are things that are not as visible that that are equally variant across across people that, that I'm I'm super excited about. There are a set of genomic tests as well for m- medication efficacy. Yep. So I've learned about a few companies that are doing doing testing specifically to find efficacy for mental health medications, for example, because mm. there are certain markers that indicate that certain types of drugs are just ineffective or have, you know, the side effects are worse than the, the actual benefits and, and things like that. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm super excited for that space to become more, uh, more commercialized as well, or more consumer driven so that, you know, patients can really be in, in charge of their, their own information and be able to share that with their, with their providers and, and get the right care they need. Totally. Totally. I'm kind of curious your take. So this is one of the things that that I've been kind of keeping an eye on too, and you may have a interesting perspective on it too. Is that been thinking about a lot of the kind of economic changes in healthcare due to due to COVID and the pandemic, and some of the scenarios that we're seeing now are driving a lot more consumer focused approaches. So there's telehealth now, which is kind of leading people to question why should I even go to the clinic whenever I can just stay at home and, and be on a video conference. And then that raises the question of why does my doctor even need to be in the same city as I am? Can I just talk to anybody? And people are getting tests mailed to their, their houses. And is there an expansion of, of diagnostics and as, as sort of a retail retail space as well? So I'm kind of curious from, from your side, are you, are you seeing any of that or, or how is any of the changes right now impacting y'all? Yeah. So I'm definitely bullish on any organization, startup, enterprise, whatever, that is about scaling healthcare resources. I think Redox, obviously you fall squarely in that category, but in general, that was always an important aspect. And now more so than ever, I think it's challenging. It's challenging the assumptions about what daily practice needs to be, right? Both in healthcare and in work in many other ways. So I completely agree with you. I don't really have any novel insights to that but I completely agree. I think the thing that I've been spending a lot of time on has been the economic aspects of paying for healthcare and having that be employer-based. And that's the thing I think with record unemployment and record utilization of healthcare, I think there's going to be a, a very large medical loss ratio from America's hospitals that we haven't yet discussed or dealt with. And the disconnect I see is in times of a pandemic, we are still 100% talking about the economy. 
And the issue I see with that is the fact that we need the economy to run so that employers can provide jobs and through jobs comes medical insurance. And, and I think, I hope that this kind of proves a model whereby maybe there's another option for people to have insurance because those medical bills are lagging. They come at a later date. And it's the thing that I don't hear enough people talking about, which is like how the model's kind of failing us right now. Does that make sense? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, I think we're we're one of the few countries where, where it works this way. And we're also one of the least efficient countries in terms of delivering delivering healthcare. So, you know, there's there's some correlation there probably. So maybe moving back a little bit to some of the data science work that goes on at the Broad and on your team, you know, could you tell us a little bit about how much data science and healthcare is sort of about math and, and knowing the models and the algorithms versus knowing the actual content of how healthcare works and kind of the medical specific components of it and what you look for on members of your team? You know, the Broad focuses on collaboration. I'll say that again. And I think a, a big foundation to collaboration is intersectionality. Like you need a lot of different types of expertise in order to make this work well. And I think we're not unique to other organizations in the healthcare or life sciences field where when you need a data science, a scientist, or you need a software engineer, you don't necessarily need them to have healthcare expertise as long as there are people with healthcare expertise at the table. And so our organization's not that different in that way. We have we have some amazing machine learning scientists. We just hired a group of people who were kind of working at Uber before this. And I wish I knew the specific algorithms and tools that they had been responsible before, but they were good ones, right? We, we hire from all different aspects of the data science community and really focus on anything ranging from optimizing a pipeline for throughput so that you can sequence data faster and do quality checks on data faster to like machine learning algorithms that, for example, can co-train cardiac MRI data with an ECG so that you can detect ventricular hypertrophy, not from imaging, but from your ECG signals that are undetectable to the eye. So we've got teams that kind of can do all of that, but they need direction from academic and clinical researchers. And so we fail the moment, you know, there's no scientific champion at the table and clinical reviewer reviewing the labels that we've created. So I think we really thrive because we've got all of those seats at the table. But I think that most healthcare companies that are successful in data science have that kind of makeup as well. So I'm very, very encouraging of intersectional teams. And, and that's how we do it, both in data science, software, and, and with our specific scientists too. And one other question I was going to ask about sort of your your model and, and kind of the open source approach and the, the collaboration with the outside world is mm-hmm. just a little bit about how, how that works, you know, how, how people get engaged, if you have any cool success stories or anything like that. Like open source is a pledge we make to the community. I think a lot of people who write open source software means like open source doesn't necessarily mean reusable and implementable, right? In early days, we built components. And one example is we have built a workflow execution service and a uh, specific like easy to use workflow execution language for researchers. We built those two, we open source them and there's good adoption in the community. The, you know, the cloud 
software engineers from cloud vendors like AWS. We got all, an Alibaba cloud backend. We have an Azure backend. They've kind of built backends for our own workflow execution service so that users in the community can deploy it. It works on-prem too, on HPC, and et cetera. So that's been a really great example of community adoption of something that we've built and it promotes standards of data processing, which ultimately promote reproducibility of scientific results, which is obviously a challenging thing when you're kind of emerging in a new field. Now we're kind of at phase two, where what we're operating for the ecosystem is an amalgamation of a lot of different components. You know, we're operating a service more than we are operating different components or pushing code out into the ecosystem for community adoption. And so in that world, you know, everything is still open source. I could say anyone can stand up our platform, but I don't think anyone will because I think it costs a lot of money and a lot of headache just maintaining it, trust me. And and then it's sort of like, let us do that for you. At the same time, we've open sourced the kind of data management layer. So anyone can kind of stand up a new node of the network and connect to the mothership so that researchers can access both their private data maintained in their own node behind their organizational boundary and connect to the more publicly available kind of community research data that's available through the mothership and other nodes. So that's kind of the model that we have today. I will say, you know, I believe that I believe that software doesn't necessarily need to be proprietary. And I and I would argue there's probably not a huge difference between open source and closed source software besides optics. Um, unless you're building something very small and nimble or it's like a, an algorithm or a code package. So like I like that we're open source. I think it's a nice thing that we can pat ourselves on the back for, but is it a huge differentiator? Are people using our software because it's open source? No, I think people use software because it's easy to use and it meets the user needs. Where I do see the community going is kind of in a similar way with algorithms too. So for example, we are, you know, we're building a lot of machine learning algorithms. We're building them for purpose for different collaborators that we're working with. And you kind of need a common engine to spit some of this stuff out, kind of work on labeling and and be built across multiple data sets as as new data comes in. In general, you know, in in the biomedical research world, the more biomedical data you have, the better. And there's a few kind of large scale data assets that are very useful. The UK Biobank is one. The US is building uh, a data set called the All of Us Precision Medicine program. And that I think it's now the all of us research program, but it's going to have a million Americans available for research. 300,000 people have consented and have their EMR data in the system today. They're all going to have whole genome sequencing. So pretty soon this data is going to be like a very common reference for population genetics. And anyway, the point is you're going to want to build kind of a reusable ML engine on top of that, that can spit out different algorithms and and relabel and kind of iterate as needed. And there's an open question for us in terms of which components of that should be open source versus not, right? Because at some point in time, there's got to be something that's protected, something that's kind of special to an organization. And I think I'm increasingly of the mindset that the kind of processing and the engine should be open source. It should be available to the community, but what gets spit out like the sort of most downstream deliverable, uh, the outcome of the of the engine should probably be the IP in the situation. Uh, I just think there's this constant shift of 
raw materials start out as IP, then they kind of get commoditized, and then they should be open source and available to the community. And so I think that's happening in data sort in data science. And I think the kind of built for purpose algorithms will probably move to a world of being more IP and the raw exhaust and kind of the input should be available to the community broadly. But it's a shifting yeah, landscape. I would, I would say that that's, that's actually very similar to the world that, that Redox exists in as well, where the, you know, the world 10 years ago was all of the monetization and services were around getting the data from point A to point B. Mm -hmm. And, you know, our, our goal at least is to totally commoditize that part and, you know, continue to focus on sort of, you know, the, the top of the treadmill being what are the new services that are lowering the, the friction to get into healthcare, lowering the friction for a a developer in the healthcare space. And Mm. as we get adoption, continuing to, to kind of amortize that, that work across the, the entire developer community. So yeah, I think it's a, it's a trend we see too. I'm glad we're aligned on that. (laughs) Maybe this is a good point to segue into, you know, if you if you have any recommended resources or or anything for folks who might be getting started either with a technical background, just coming into healthcare or uh, just starting out their careers, uh, anything you would suggest in terms of resources for for folks. The one other aspect that I would encourage people to read up on is the fundamental kind of economic factors of healthcare. So it's one thing to understand the businesses. It's also important to understand the foundations. And for that, I would read anything by Michael Porter, um, a great healthcare economist, often talking about just sort of effective ways to stratify populations and deliver care effectively at a high, high quality, low cost. And then the one other thing that I think about a lot is these kind of how economic factors drive healthcare outcomes. That is like how healthy people are. And for that, I would really recommend either like getting a summary or reading the health gap, which just especially in this day and time when there's unemployment is kind of skyrocketing and there's a lot of civil unrest, I think understanding how much social factors like poverty and how well school systems are invested into really have profound impacts on health outcomes and I think it'll give you a better sense of sort of the factors at play and where where businesses and technology can really enable and change healthcare for the better, including delivering care to, to more people in a scalable way. So if you're if you're into sort of reading as your as your method of <laughs> learning, I think those are great resources. But nothing beats just learning on the job. I mean, James, I feel like you and I have both kind of learned everything that we know from from our work in it, right? Yeah, absolutely. I was I was actually going to mention this before when you were saying you were, how you how you got started. Our stories aren't aren't that different in some ways. I was uh, I, I I graduated college I think right about the same time and was actually kind of just playing poker semi professionally. Oh, when, nice! Uh, oh my god, I love that. For, yeah, for about a year or so before Epic actually reached out and and started there. And yeah, going into it, I you know, I was a physics major. I did a bunch of you know computational physics, knew some programming, but knew next to nothing about healthcare, and really uh, learned on the job there as well. And even as we're hiring at at Redox, we're very much looking for a diversity of backgrounds. And you know, our our goal is to uh, change some of the status quo in healthcare. And we're very intentional about you know not always bringing in folks with healthcare background because mm-hmm. we we need to learn from other disciplines and other other perspectives. So. Yeah, absolutely. Learning on the job is 100% the best way to go. 
Yeah, I love that. I love hiring for differences also. I completely agree. I think hiring for differences is like the number one most important thing we and other organizations like us can do right now. Great. Well, with that, thank you so much for joining us, Danielle. And yeah, I will be talking to you soon. And just as we close, if folks are interested in reaching out to you, what's the best way that they could get in touch? They can hit me up on LinkedIn. Uh, I have a website too, dannychio.com, and you can kind of learn more about me and my philosophy, but LinkedIn is probably the easiest one. That sounds great. Yeah. And we'll include links to everything that Danielle's mentioned, including how to get in touch with her in the show notes. But thanks again for, for joining us, Danielle. Thanks, bud. This is great. Nice talking to you. There you have it. Our second installment of the Shift Six podcast. Thank you so much to Danielle for being on the show. Join us next time where I'll be talking with Greg Tracy, fellow Madisonian and CTO of Propeller Health. And remember to subscribe to Shift 6 so you don't miss out. And a quick favor, we're a new show, so leaving us a review and rating is super helpful as we get our podcast likes under us. And as always, please send feedback or guest ideas to podcast at redoxengine.com. We'd love to hear from you. And finally, thank you for listening to Shift 6, a podcast for healthcare developers.